a podcast. Scrawny script. There may be listeners nearby. That could be the remains of a radio broadcasting station. This is pretty far south into the RSS feed. This has the feeling of a Gamjabar episode. Are we certain the episode will be good? Kynes promised it would be. Hit play. Welcome to Gam Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. And my name's Leo. And Leo. Yep. It's time for Book Club 4, baby! Hey! I've been looking forward to this. This is fun. This is good. Yeah. I'm starting to enjoy these book club episodes. What? <laughs> you mean to say you've been hacking this whole time? <laughs> yes, my joy and merriment thus far has all been an act. I knew it. And now I'm having fun. <laughs> it's, it is fun. And this is also, as we are in this part of the book, we are really getting to some very juicy goings on. We are really oh, yeah. into Dune. I mean, again... We are almost halfway through. Yeah. We are blasting through this book. But before we get into the pages of this section, <sighs> right? <laughs> a couple of housekeeping things we always got to take care of. True. Yeah. First and foremost, just a reminder this is part four, and we are under the assumption that you have listened to the previous parts. But just in case you haven't, hi. Hi. Also, <laughs> our goal with this book club is to cover the entirety of the book in preparation for the movie coming out later this year, and we'll be taking the book roughly 100 pages at a time per episode. And, you know, it's a book club, so mm -hmm. email us. <laughs> Let us know what you think. Let us know what questions you have. I've had some incredible conversations kind of off mic with people who are reading along with us. So absolutely send those our way. We love to hear them. So email us at gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Absolutely. And finally, as a reminder, these book club episodes are non-spoiler. We will not be talking about anything that happens in the pages beyond what we have covered thus far, which means anything past page 420, blaze it, <laughs> it will not be covered on today's episode. So you don't have to worry about spoilers if you are a new reader, but if you are a returning reader or a longtime Dune fan, We'll still be bringing some deep lore insight and pointing out some of the tiny details that you may have missed on your previous reads. All right, Leo, before we get into today's episode and dive into these chapters, as always, we like to take a pause here and answer any mailbag questions that we receive from our wonderful listeners. And today, we have a message from Cheryl. Yeah. So the message reads, During their time alone together, Paul is trying to comprehend his new powers. His mother seems in shock or something, but I expected she would have been able to help him more than she does. It's a shift in their relationship that seems significant, but it goes by too quickly. Can you explain this? Does Paul have more ability than her at that point? 
has he moved beyond her to a place she can't follow? Incredible what a question. Great question. <laughs> no, it's great. I <laughs> love it. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, something that we touched on, frankly, in that book club episode, but didn't go super deep on. So I love that Cheryl wants more clarification on it because it is a very important point. So to answer the question in brief, uh, yeah, I mean, like, that's kind of basically what's happening. Paul is right. dabbling in powers that are simply beyond Jessica's grasp. It's something she has never experienced in all her training, with all her abilities, and all of the knowledge she has access to. This is something she does not know about. I mean, even as Paul says, he kind of calls out all of the Bene Gesserit, Jessica included. You were not expecting what I am. Right. Yeah. They had plans. Paul is the, you know, culmination of years and years and years of planning. And he is not what they expected. And he doesn't exactly know what he is. You know, in that chapter, he's going, Mom, what am I? <laughs> like, yeah. This is crazy. What have you made me? What have you made? Yeah, exactly. What have you made me? So the fact that she doesn't have a full grasp on what's happening makes so much sense. Not to mention, even fully-fledged reverend mothers, they only have the access to genetic memories along their female ancestral line. But they cannot see any memories or any experiences of their male ancestors, and broadly, with the exception of maybe some, like, Mentat-trained Bene Gesserit, broadly, they don't really have any ability to look forward, generally. Now, Paul, however, can do all of that. He's the main His powers character. <laughs> allow him. He's the main character, guys. He's Neo. Yeah. His powers do allow him to access his male genetic line, his female genetic line, the past and the future. He is firing on all cylinders here. And again, something that Jessica simply does not understand. Something that even a fully trained, top of her class, reverend mother wouldn't be able to comprehend. He's firing on cylinders clearly that no one knew existed, you know, mm -hmm. and the full extent of his capabilities is at this point completely unknowable. <laughs> and Jessica certainly doesn't know here. Jessica is a Benny Gesserit adept. Right. She is not right. a fully fledged reverend mother. She didn't pass those grueling tests that unlock that ability of genetic memories to become a reverend mother. She hasn't passed that test yet. And in fact, very few of the Bene Gesserit ever actually pass the test to become reverend mothers. It really is the best of the best of them who go on to honestly ascent to this level right. in their careers. We're talking about a very small subset of very powerful and talented people. Jessica, as we talked about in our book club episode, extremely competent, one of right. the most powerful people in the Dune book that we have met thus far, but still not a reverend mother. She right. has still not achieved those heights. Yeah. And, and really just to kind of summarize, she is out of her depth, no doubt. Yeah. And I, I really love that the question kind of brings up grief and shock because yes. keep in mind, she just, first of all, she's learning that her son is definitely the main character of this novel. <laughs> and then also she just learned that her dad is Baron Harkonnen, like the mortal Yikes. enemy of her love and Duke, Leto Atreides. God, that's got to be a gut punch on just a 
deeply spiritual level. <laughs> it's got to be yeah. terrible. Yeah, it's got to shake her own sense of identity to its core in this moment. Totally. It's a lot to process. And also, lest we forget. Right. They are literally in a tent in the desert after having their entire house and the man they love, Oscar Isaac and his beard, <laughs> killed. Yeah. As far as they know, all of the Atreides and all of their allies are likely dead. And they are two survivors lost in the desert on arguably one of the harshest planets in the entire empire. You really can't blame Jessica for not thinking straight, even if she did at some point in one of her lessons long, long ago at the Benny Gesserit School learn about the Kwisatz Haderach and his abilities. Right. She cannot be blamed for not being able to recall a lesson in this very moment. She is processing so much. Her son is awakening. He's being honestly kind of scary and creepy, you know, like yeah. predicting shit that's going to happen in the future, calling her out for being pregnant, telling her that Vladimir Harkonnen's her dad. It, it's a lot to process in this moment. And I really do like that Cheryl brought this up in her question. Grief is a big factor here. Yes, maybe Jessica could sit down and think about Paul's powers. But when is she supposed to do that? They are literally fighting for survival every minute here in the desert. Yeah. Just amazing question. Thank you so much for writing in. And these are the sorts of questions we love to get because it really is great to pause on these moments that pass too quickly. Yeah. Thanks so much for writing, Cheryl. Well, now that that's all out of the way, let's uh, let's jump into the episode. And again, this is pages 327 to 420 Blaze It uh, is, how you say, <laughs> is how you say that number. That joke is going to get real old it's, real fast. <laughs> you know, it got old, but now it's funny for me again. Like it's, it's come around. <laughs> the fact that it's old already is funny inherently. You're right. Like a steersman, like a guild steersman. It folded space <laughs> and now it's funny for me again. So we're starting with chapter 23. And the same thing I say every book club, <laughs> the chapters aren't numbered, but the yes. last one was 22. This one's 23. Great. We begin this section with Paul and Jessica still awaiting Duncan motherfucking Idaho's promised return. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's... So cool. Now, he's not showing up, though. And he said, I'm going to be there by that time. If I'm not there, assume I'm gone. They assume at this point they've been ghosted. You know, we've all been there. He's it just, hurts. he left them on red. So they <laughs> suit up and they head out. They collapse their still tent. It's kind of a, a neat little process. The mood is uh, tense <laughs> after mm -hmm. the last chapter where Paul basically reawakens into the chosen one, a.k.a. the Kwisatz Tatarak. And uh, Jessica getting fucking blindsided by the fact that her father is Baron <laughs> Harkonnen. Oh, brutal. They witness, as they leave the tent, uh, Harkonnen ornithopters just kind of shooting the desert with laser guns. Uh, <laughs> it's like shooting the desert. And it's like, okay, so they're, they're hunting for us. Okay. And they think about that for a moment, but then, bum, 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 we've got unknown ornithopters, which... <laughs> Might sound familiar because this is how a chapter ended like five chapters ago. <laughs> but guys, it never gets old. We've got ornithopters coming in at nighttime. It's exciting. It's thrilling. A thrill indeed. And also maybe <laughs> Frank wrote these chapters a few weeks apart. Yeah, I forgot right. about that. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Chapter 24, we join Mentat Thufir Hawat with a small band of Atreides survivors who escaped that Harkonnen attack we talked about in the last episode. 
The Fear and this gang of Atreides have a Fremen escort with them and are sort of chilling at the edge of a basin here. We spend a lot of this chapter inside the Fear's head, actually, and he's thinking a lot of thoughts. He's a mentat. <laughs> he's doing those calculations. That's his thing. Loves to do it. Yep. <laughs> the primary thoughts kind of at the forefront of his mind are, I'm pissed. I'm pissed at Jessica, <laughs> who I believe is the betrayer who betrayed the Duke that I am extremely loyal to. Oh, tough we'll look. talk later about uh, how mistaken he truly is here. Right. But in this chapter, it becomes very clear to Thafir and to us as the reader, of course, how wildly overpowered the Fremen actually are. They pull off some insane <laughs> yeah. stunts it's crazy. in this chapter. Yeah. And again, put a pin in that. We are going to return to the Fremen in our takeaway section a little later on in the episode. But just to throw some facts out there, we learned that the Fremen took out a combined Harkonnen and Sardaukar force of 100 and only lost two men doing so. Wild. And in this chapter, the fear himself witnessed Fremen overpower an ornithopter <laughs> full of Sardaukar soldiers. Incredible. Absolutely crazy. Unfortunately, as powerful as the Fremen are, they are unable to protect the fear in this moment because the scene ends with a Sardaukar ambush. The Fremen escort gets killed and our favorite Mentat gets hit with a stunner. <sighs> Boom. He's passed out, folks. Rattled again. <laughs> Ever rattled, Mr. Thufir Hawat. Chapter 25. We rejoin Paul and Jessica as the Ornithopters land. And guess who it is? It's Duncan motherfucking Idaho did not leave them on <laughs> My red. man. My man did not leave them on red. This man shows up. He's a little, he's fashionably late, folks. And right. uh, you know what? Paul knew it was him from the way he was flying his ship. Which is just such a niche talent. Like, how do mm -hmm. you, I mean, how do you show that off to, I don't know. I'm trying to picture his America's Got Talent audition, and it's, it seems. Not exactly a showstopper. It's not. It's not. But it's cool in this situation. Now, Duncan's not alone. He's got the company of Dr. Kynes. And very quickly, Paul and Jessica are sort of shepherded into this ecological testing station where Kynes uh, is kind of. He's using this as a base of operations for uh, for Fremen goings on. And very quickly, kind of a major bomb drop is we learn that Dr. Kynes is Liet that we've been hearing about since we arrived on Arrakis. You know, we had people going, only Liet knows, or it's in Liet's hands. Everyone, including like Thufir, were like, is that a local deal? No, it's this guy. It's literally <laughs> Dr. Kynes. He's just good at taking care of shit. People are like, ah, it's in Leah's hands. He's got this. <laughs> it's very passed over in this moment. Both Paul and Jessica are like, okay, I guess he's Leah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Now, initially, Paul comes on a little strong. He's new to this being a Duke thing. He's only been Duke for like 40 hours. But uh, within two pages gets Liet's unquestionable loyalty. Again, yeah, amazing. One, 180 degrees Liet is <laughs> playing his trump card, which is... His plan for his first 100 days, incredible. It's, it's so good. <laughs> and, oh my God. Now, before Liet formalizes his decision to become an active ally of House Atreides, Harkonnen forces discover the base and kind of fighting breaks out. In this subsequent scene, we learn that Duncan Idaho receives a mortal blow we don't know mm. it's so sad we don't know if and when he dies but 
it's very clear to both Paul and Jessica that he is going to be dead very soon. And in that moment, you know, Liet makes the decision to help House Atreides and to ally himself with the young Duke. He splits them up. He sends Paul and Jessica to a stashed away ornithopter, instructing them to fly fucking straight into one of those Coriolis storms <laughs> that Paul was reading about with Dr. Yui, you know, cuts through yep. flesh and bone like butter. These sand particles will tear to pieces. Well, guess what? Fucking fly into it, kid. It's going to go great. They board the ornithopter. We hear a little bit about prescience and more about his thoughts here a little later in our takeaways section. Once they've taken off, Paul and Jessica are briefly chased by Harkonnen pilots, but Paul's piloting skills are amazing. <laughs> He's got the best teachers. Yeah. In the, he passed his drivers, his ornithopter driving test real early at like <laughs> age five. So uh, they get away and in a truly, truly iconic scene, he plunges the ornithopter into the sandstorm with the simple goal, folks. You got to get high and just got to stay there. That's also a very concise summary of my Friday nights as soon as I get <laughs> off work because it's the freaking weekend, baby. Bro, get high and stay there. Absolutely. Learn <laughs> from Paul Atreides, 100%. <laughs> Chapter 26. Woo! We are back with Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Yeah. As he's woken up by his newly appointed head of guard. And Nefud has some great news for the Baron. Paul and Jessica are dead. Hey, that's good. They're um, probably. Oh, uh, wait. Most likely. Okay. Definitely dead seems, is what he is <laughs> seems verbatim less what he no. delivers here. Yeah. <laughs> What's more, in addition to that wonderful maybe news, they also realize that Kynes was a traitor. Oh. Recall that Kynes was supposed to work with the Imperial and Harkonnen plotters right. to take down the Atreides. And of course, Duke Leto Atreides and his wonderful beard won him over, as we oh. talked about in a previous episode. So they realize Kynes has sided with House Atreides. And a third piece of news that Nefud wants to bring here to the Baron is Thufir Hawat has been captured. Remember, two chapters ago, my guy got hit with a stunner. Ugh. And now we learn where he ended up. He is in Harkonnen custody. Sort of. I mean, the Sardaukar <laughs> happened. <Right>. But <laughs> right, the, Baron, right, right. the Baron's got a plan to get both Kynes and Thufir Hawat away from the Sardaukar soldiers and into his grasp. Specifically, Kynes is going to get killed and Thufir Hawat is going to work for the Baron. That's the plan. Now, remember, the Baron desperately needs a Mentat because his own Mentat Peter DeVry University. Hey, go rattlesnakes. Is dead. <laughs> <laughs> so the Baron puts together this plan that he will woo Thufir Hawat with logic and a complicated combination of poisons and antidotes also. <laughs> so kind of dangle his life in front of him as well, <laughs> which oh to God. me, extremely convincing. So Baron, yeah. smart guy here. <laughs> we also learn in this conversation that plans for Arrakis have changed after Peter's death. Piter was supposed to take over, at least temporarily, until Fade Rotha, the Baron's favorite nephew, could be groomed to take over Arrakis. Now that Piter's dead, in his place, Beast Raban mm. will run Arrakis with a cruel iron fist. He will crush the populace, demoralize the people of the planet, and then Fade Rotha is going to swoop in <laughs> and be 
the leader that will save these people and in their eyes will be their salvation. That's the Baron's plan. Yeah. One final takeaway here in this chapter is that the Beast Raban brings reports of Fremen defeating Sardaukar to the Baron. And the Baron is utterly dismissive. Oh, yeah. Just is like, don't think, why are you wasting my time with this Raban? I don't care about this. They're not Fremen. They were probably Atreides soldiers hiding as Fremen. Stop worrying about this. I need you to desperately ring Arrakis for every penny you can because I just blew the entire budget for the next 60 years in this plot against the Atreides. That's really all he cares about. And he ignores these omens about the Fremen. Dangerous mindset to have Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. In chapter 27, we rejoin Paul and Jessica in the Ornithopter nearly four hours later. This oh is a long flight. He's flying New York to somewhere four hours from New York. <laughs> Paul's mental awareness is just going. He is computing away and he's kind of reading the different signs of the air and the different flows of, of the sandstorm. And at exactly the right moment, he plunges the aircraft into a vortex that ejects them safely from the storm. Now, he manages a super bumpy landing, and they immediately have to just run as fast as they can because, you know what, those deep desert spicy boys' worms <laughs> love to eat a good ornithopter. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, a worm always shows up, they were warned, and one does, and he eats their aircraft whole. And they are stunned at the size of this spicy, thick desert boy. <laughs> anyway, I don't know why I got so aggressive with that. Oh, my gosh. Sorry. He's a worm. That's Just... what the ladies used to call me. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah. Whew, sweating. So on the way into the desert, they decide to make camp. Paul leads the way into a cave and <laughs> whoops, Jessica, the elite Benny Jesuit. <laughs> Slips and get buried, gets buried in sand. Uh, nearly dies. Nearly dies. This elite Penny Jesuit witch. <laughs> it's a tough look. It's really tough a, look. It's a tough look. Paul digs her out because he's the chosen one, and he can dig through some sand. And uh, they lose their pack of supplies, and this is really a death sentence. I mean, again, one of our main takeaways from the first book club episode is how harsh Arrakis is with the proper equipment. You don't lose water, but without it, you're dead. So they are basically doomed, and Paul has to figure out how to get their little pack of supplies back. He does about eight pages of science. I'm <laughs> just really complicated. You know, he's making a foaming solution with an alkaline mixture of the spice and like the battery fluid from the, uh, from like a compass. It's, it's a lot. I mean, I've read this section multiple times and I'm still like, oh, okay, that's yeah. very cool. I'm sure chemists out there are like, this is dope. But uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> about eight pages later, they've got their supplies back, which is great. Finally, the chapter ends with Jessica basically insisting that they return to uh, Paul's Pranabendu training because he kind of like panicked for a moment when his fucking mother got buried and nearly died, <laughs> which is like super ignoring the fact that she's the one that fucking slipped and got buried. Yeah. <laughs> he got down just fine, Jessica. I, I see what you're doing. Gosh, it's <laughs> rude. Yeah. Projecting much. Oh, uh, come Benny on. Benny Jesuit, 
Jessica. So they assert Harkonnen, as we've learned. <laughs> She's a Harkonnen. I knew it. It's true. <laughs> we heard that last episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Chapter 28. Oh, the last chapter of today's section. We join Gurney Halleck. Yes. Remember him? Oh, love him. Love him. Our Ballasit playing boy. We know he's alive and turns out he is with the smugglers, which is great news for anyone who is team House Atreides, another powerful lieutenant of the Atreides, still alive and kicking. Yeah. Unlike Duncan Idaho. <laughs> Oof. Rip. Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> so Gurney is sitting across from Stiban Tuick, and we sort of learn Gurney's situation. He is here under smuggler protection with 74 Atreides men who also survived the attack with him. Now, the smugglers aren't so fond of the Harkonnens. <laughs> right. And Tuick actually makes it clear that the smugglers are happy to aid House Atreides and specifically help out Gurney and these 74 survivors. Right. If they're willing to work, if they're willing to work off the debt of the sanctuary the smugglers have provided. Right. What the smugglers refuse to do is overtly side with House Atreides and obviously go against the Harkonnens or the Sardaukar. They want to stay covert their entire MO. They're right. not trying to change that up. Right, yeah. Gurney, on the other hand, is ready <laughs> to go guns motherfucking blazing yeah. to kill Beast Raban, who Gurney learns from Tuik will be the one to now oversee Arrakis. Gurney, turns out, has personal beef with Beast Raban. Mm -hmm. And if you want to learn all about Gurney Alex's entire history, we dedicated a full episode to him. Go find that in our feed. It adds so much context and flavor to Gurney's character in the book. It's a spoiler-free episode. Definitely check that out to learn about his relationship with Beast Raban and why he so desperately wants revenge here. This scene is heartbreaking with all that context. Absolutely. Now, Tuik here is trying to spill some hot water on Gurney and calm him down. And it's basically like, hey, be smart about this. I can help you get revenge. I want revenge. They killed my father as Martuik. I feel the same passion you do, but I'm not about to run in there on a suicide mission. Right. So he gives Gurney a choice. You join me and you provide me your skill set, your fighting capabilities, and I will strategically and slowly help you get the revenge you seek. Gurney decides ultimately that that seems like a smart deal. This <laughs> right. Tuik guy's got a good head on his shoulders, but he's not going to force his men to follow him down that path. He offers his 74 men the same choice, either join the smugglers or take one of the smuggler ships off planet and get the hell out of Dodge. We talked about Atreides' loyalty earlier, and these 74 men do not fail. Every single one of them choose to stay and fight with Gurney Halleck and support the smugglers. Now, this chapter and our section today ends on a very sweet and very sad note. One of those 74 men is injured and on his deathbed, and he asks Gurney to come over and serenade him on the balisette. Gurney knows exactly which song to play, and the man passes away. And the chapter ends with, and then we were 73. Man, it really is one of the sweetest, saddest moments. Yeah. And what a brilliant way to show, not tell. We see uh, here yeah. how 
loyal the Atreides forces are, and how close Gurney is to his men, that he knows exactly what song to play to let this man peacefully die. It just shows us we don't have to be told that Gurney is close to his men or his men are loyal to him. What a perfect scene to just show us. It's like it's like a family, and they are clearly closer than just nameless comrades in war. Yeah. <sighs> anyway. Wow. Well, anyway. Before I tear up this early <laughs> in the fucking episode. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break here, but stick around. Right after this break, we're going to be talking about how big of a deal Mintats are, even though they keep messing up left and right. So hang out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, Leo, let's talk our takeaways from this section. We have three major takeaways from these pages. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this. Takeaway number one. Guess what, guys? Mentats are a big deal. <laughs> yeah. We hear a little bit about them. We hear about Paul's training. We got a bit about Mentats before, but in this chapter, we learn a ton more about them. And we also spend a big chunk of this chapter inside the head of one. Right. Then <laughs> we get Baron, who is not a Mentat, to be very clear, basically <laughs> talking about Mentats and talking about how he deals with Mentats and kind of in some way the weaknesses of Mentats. It's a it's a fascinating bit of data. Yeah, absolutely. And look, we actually dedicated a massive two-part episode to Mentats. But since that episode is spoiler, and if you're a new reader, we want to make sure you're caught up, let's do a quick spoiler-free overview of what Mentats are and what we've learned about them thus far in the book and what we learn about them specifically in these pages. Right. So backing up a bit, the Dune Encyclopedia, which is this massive sort of compendium of extended Dune lore, tells us a little bit about the history of Mentats. Now, Mentats are basically human computers. They are people who are disciplined through years and years of intense training to process and store immense amounts of data. Again, all of Dune is post-computer. There are no computers. So there mm -hmm. is this sort of gaping niche for we need something to crunch some numbers and to, you know, add some sums, but also just to keep track of stuff. There's so many things going on in the right. galaxy. We need some help. And the guy, the guy who basically showed up to help humanity on this kind of big puzzle was Gilbert Albans, who started the Order of Mentats basically 10,000 years before this book. Mm -hmm. Now, he was doing some light reading, kind of perusing some novels on the <laughs> Butlerian Jihad, just checking some facts. And he kind of figured, and this is kind of a bold assumption, but he kind yeah. of figured, <laughs> you know, we made computers from scratch, us right. humans. So we, we have to be able to do what computers do, right? Like, 
obviously, we can do anything a computer can do. We just got to work hard enough. Yeah. I don't know if I necessarily agree with Gilbert (laughs) Albans here. I mean, this sort of reeks of, I created you and I can unmake you energy. Like, (laughs) Sure. Just because we make computers doesn't mean we can do everything computers or can. It's an extension of our capabilities. Yada, yada. We don't have to get into that. But the point is he uses this uh, logic is a word I'm going to use very loosely here. (laughs) But he uses this thought that we made computers. Why can't we just do the things that computers do to formulate over the next few years a secret training program, basically, to start creating the first, quote unquote, human computers, which he names Mentats. Their job is to crunch data, crunch numbers, and sometimes with quite shocking accuracy, even predict future events. Yeah. And of course, as you can imagine, in a post computer world, these Mentats just instantly became valuable tools for everyone politicians who were, have some scheming to do, right, merchants right. who need someone to balance the motherfucking budget. Right. And honestly, like any other powerful group in the galaxy who needs to do any sort of massive logistical task that a computer would, now they did it through these highly trained and extremely valuable Mentats. Keeping track of the plot of Kingdom Hearts takes a Mentat, folks. It's (laughs) wild. Yeah. You know, that really pushes a Mentat's abilities, but... (laughs) Might be impossible. Might be impossible for a Mentat. (laughs) And to that end, Mentats are not foolproof, as we've seen like a dozen times in these first 400 pages. (laughs) We get a lot of examples, and it's tough because we really have to keep in mind that this is the first 400 pages are kind of the exceptions to the rule. Mentats are excellent for like 9,000 years until these pages. (laughs) Exactly. Dune really is a story of unprecedented things happening. The Kwisatz Haderach. Yeah. Sardaukar losing to Fremen, uh, Fremen, you know. Exactly. It is a series of just unprecedented <laughs> events. So that's something to keep in mind. I mean, we talked about early on the traitor, Yui, a souk doctor, having his conditioning broken. Unprecedented. Unprecedented, so, yeah. A lot of things happening in this book have never happened before in the tens of thousands of years of human history. Something to keep in mind. Even Paul using the voice in last in the last section before he kicked that fucking dude's heart in. And exploded <laughs> and his exploded heart. Exploded his heart. Paul using the voice is the first time a, a man has ever used the voice trained by Benny Gesserit in tens of thousands of years. It's, yeah, again, unprecedented things. So we have some examples to go through. And let's go through them. The first one... <laughs> Which is just infuriating, <laughs> considering we find out that Dr. Yui is the traitor on, like, the third chapter. Thufir is just sold on this Jessica train, which oh doesn't make any sense. She made some pretty good arguments, but he just ignores them, I guess. Yeah, and he, he's he's clouded by bad data, honestly. He fears Jessica's powers, which were on full display when she used the voice on him. Right. He inherently just distrusts Benny Gesserit witches, his word, not ours. <laughs> right, right. And what's funny is, if you recall a few chapters ago, in that one-on-one conversation that Thufir and Jessica had, Jessica calls his ass out about this, the fact that he's clouded, that his judgment is clouded and he's using bad data. She says to him, quote, Thufir, I want you to examine your own emotional involvement in this. You're the embodiment of logic, a mentat, 
anything outside yourself. This you can see and apply your logic to it. But it's a human trait that when you encounter personal problems, those things most deeply personal are the most difficult to bring out for our logic to scan. End quote. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, so good. Just poking holes through his theories, just being like, dude, you're too close to this. Your emotions, your biases are allowing you to make bad calls. And he responds totally maturely and <laughs> is reasonable. And again, the embodiment of logic. No, he gets no. all defensive and childish. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Thufir, best in the universe. Come on. He goes, uh. quote, you think now to teach me my trade. The finest mentats have a healthy respect for the error factor in their computations. Yeah. <laughs> exactly what she's saying, dude. Yeah, man. Come on. <laughs> Damn it, Thufir. <laughs> uh, Thufir, my guy. Listen to what she's saying instead of ignoring the motherfucking error factor in your computation right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh. Lord. It's wild. One of the best mentats in the galaxy. And he's just being duped because he doesn't trust Benny Jesuit. And he's scared and emotional. And this is a high pressure situation. You can't necessarily fault him. But man, is he being ignorant and blind in that scene. And to be fair, the Benny Jesuits are like super secretive and clearly have powers. That are not There's, yes, you know, his distrust is warranted, to yeah, be totally fair. He's just, got a big data set. And it's just leading him to the exact wrong decision. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Also, a little side note, you're ignoring the error factors in your computations <laughs> is straight up going to be my new clapback in any argument. You've, you've said that, that to me like fire. six times in the last two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, we're, we're, we're in works. a disagreement about the script <laughs> and I'm just like, Leo, you're ignoring the error factors in your computations. And I back down. I'm like, listen, I'm not going to be like Thufir. I'm going <laughs> to... You know, I'll be humble. I'm going to I'm going to listen. It's a that's a freebie, folks. You, everyone feel free to use that. It's a great, great one to throw out in the middle of arguments. That would be a good sticker. <laughs> anyway, now, whereas a computer might be cold, clearly we are seeing that Mentats are not. <laughs> Mentats yeah, totally. are not cold calculating machines. They are humans. And they this is, to be very clear, actually part of one of their strengths Mentats have the ability to make intuitive leaps that a computer cannot make because computers are bound by their program and they're bound by data. But humans are not. No matter how well you train a human, they're going to have instincts and they're going to have gut feelings or, or they're going to be able to read situations in a way that can't be articulated. Emotions always play a role in the Mentats calculations. Mm -hmm. Quote, Hawat's shocked fury had mounted until it threatened the smooth functioning of his mentat capabilities. And this is <laughs> as he's sort of discovering the extent of the Harkonnen attack. Yeah. Now, as we continue in these chapters, we learn in this conversation between the Baron and his head of guard that mentats can be fooled despite their incredible abilities of logic and calculations there are ways to fool a mentat. If you remember earlier in the book, Piter even complained that the Baron's constant criticism of him inhibited his effectiveness as right. a mentat. And, you know, I say that to my manager like every day at work, like <laughs> the constant criticism, not great for my productivity. 
<laughs> it's understandable. Again, there is a human side to these human computers. They are not cold, <laughs> impartial machines. Does your manager say, well, it sounds like you're ignoring the error factor in your computations right now? <laughs> yeah, he always hits me with that one. And I got nothing to say back. It's so it's, good. It's, it's a, a rock solid it's argument. A w- <laughs> 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 it's like family atomics. It, it really ends, ends, the, uh, ends the argument. Yeah. Exactly. Now, the Baron's entire plan to win over the fear to his side hinges on wooing him with bad data and bad logic. And specifically, he's going to be leaning pretty hard into this hatred of the Bene Gesserit and his burning hatred specifically for Jessica at this point, who, through fear, fully 1,000% believes is the traitor. There's a great quote in this chapter. Quote, He must be convinced he's not to blame for the Duke's demise. It was all the doing of that Bene Gesserit witch. He had an inferior master, one whose reason was clouded by emotion. Mentats admire the ability to calculate without emotion, Nefud. We will woo the formidable Thufir Hawat. End quote. Rude. (laughs) Duke Leto. First of of all, rude. Has a great beard. Come on. Great beard. (laughs) Second of all, notice the language the Baron is using in that quote. This idea of emotions clouding your reason, or this idea that mentats admire this ability to even set emotion aside and perform their calculations, something the fear clearly is unable to do here. Again, as Jessica said, he's too deeply personally involved in all of this. Right. And it's hard for him to separate those emotions. And the Baron is going to play right into that. That is how he is going to trick this human computer to work for him, or at least convince him to work for him also the whole antidote thing and dangling his life in front of him that, that's a yeah. major part of this plan also too. like poison and antidotes yeah <laughs> yeah also poisoning him that's a whole another part of the plan kind here's, of a backup Bear's here's a smart my guy. devious scheme also <laughs> poison i mean we gotta exactly. have the poison <laughs> the poison's gotta i'm gonna be hold there. a gun to his head <laughs> torture his wife with... yeah it's but in lot. this chapter really the baron puts it quite plainly actually he says right. quote the way to control and direct a mentat nefud is through his information. False information, false results, end quote. And that's about as simply as you can put it. That is where mentats may fall short. That is where the human part of mentats may inhibit their abilities. And, you know, just to defend Thufir for a bit. Yeah, we've been ragging on, <laughs> ragging on him quite a bit yeah. here. First of all, give computers bad data they're going to give you bad results as well. So, totally. you know, it's, it goes with the territory of the job. But he's also not totally inept. And I feel like he doesn't really get any credit for these things he does pretty well. <laughs> because, again, we mostly see his errors and we see his mistakes. Keep in mind, he actually pretty much completely correctly calculates the massive cost of the Harkonnen attack, you know, with the Imperial forces bolstering their ranks. Mm-hmm. 50 years of spice mining on Arrakis couldn't cover it. So it's wow. just insane, <laughs> especially considering we hear during that staff meeting the number of billions of Solaris. Like, yeah, it's an unfathomable amount of just money. Yeah. I mean, look, I- I'm doing some quick napkin math here. 50 years, 10 billion Solaris coming in a year. Yeah. We're talking 50. We're talking... 500 billion Solaris. The Harkonnens just dropped half a trillion dollars. Are you sure you're not a Mintat? 
That was pretty fast. <laughs> Look at you calculating with your head. Yeah, put my emotions aside. <laughs> I hope you don't edit out the you almost saying 50 billion. <laughs> <laughs> 50 times 10. Uh, 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 50. Uh, you know what? I forgot to account for my error factor. Oh, it happen, happens there. to the best of happens us. Happens to the best of us. Happens to We're you supposed mostly. to be defending yeah. Thufir. Moving on. Oh, right, right. <laughs> Something else that Thufir does incredibly well and is quite impressive here is in that chapter where he's talking to the Fremen escort and he's got these Atreides survivors with him, some of whom are injured, gravely injured. He very deftly navigates this tense situation with a scout. There is a culture barrier here. These people are not talking the same language. Yeah. The Fremen keeps bringing up this idea of water and the tribe and is quite cutthroat about the survivors, the Atreides who can survive and the ones who are too wounded to continue. That's not Thufir's mindset in this moment, of course. He's got that Atreides mindset of no soldier left behind. He has to sort of navigate this confusing conversation with the Fremen. And ultimately, against the wishes of his men, against their opposition, he manages to forge an alliance with the Fremen and gain his help. It's impressive. It's not easy to overcome those cultural hurdles. No kidding. I mean, remember Jessica nearly dying against Shoutout Mapes in a very similar right. conversation. Again, she is a trained Benny Gesserit with this unfathomable power. Thufir is a very competent Mentat, but he's no Benny Gesserit adept. So it's really, you're absolutely right. It's wildly impressive that he gets through the conversation the way he does. Not to mention, cross-reference this chapter with Gurney's, with the smugglers, and see how close the Atreides men are. You know, they know each other's names. They know each other's favorite songs. They know their, yeah. you know considering all of that, we have this added element of the cutthroat Fremen approach to, well, he's dead and you're going to die if you don't have water. So let's get the water out of that dead person who's not, no longer a person and you'll survive. The, the water needs of the tribe need to be met. It makes sense in the deep desert, but it's really hard for the Atreides men to wrap their heads around. And despite that, Thufir prevails if not only very temporarily before getting fucking stunned <laughs> but again you know you can't calculate your way out of a stunner bolt <laughs> yeah absolutely and one one final positive note that i want to throw at through fear here to wrap up our first takeaway is that in his conversation the baron mentioned that the reason he needs beast raban to squeeze arrakis for everything it's worth is to you know make that half a trillion dollars back, but also because the Baron's own secret stockpile of spice has taken a massive hit. Because if you recall, in almost a throwaway line earlier in the book, Thufir and Leto talk about a secret suicide raid that Thufir orchestrated that would sort of hit the stockpiles of Harkonnen spice that was hidden because they knew that's where the power was, that's where the money was. Right. Yeah. And so we have to give credit to the fear here. He orchestrated a successful raid that hurt the Baron's personal stockpile enough that he is now desperate to make that money back. He's doing a lot. He's working hard in the background and we don't always see it. We just happen to be there every time he trips and falls. <laughs> his trip, I mean, again, his trips are 
monumental. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they are massive falls. N- so. Not as bad as Jessica's trip in the sand. I, her but literal nearly. trip. <laughs> hilariously <laughs> literal. Uh, his are more gen- you know, figurative. <laughs> Let's move on to takeaway number two. Yes. Prescient blindness. So this is so cool and immensely important, but it also involves a lot of quotes. So <laughs> buckle, buckle up, up. Buckle up. Uh, turns out this uh, book club includes reading. So <laughs> pretty clearly by now, we're seeing that prescience is not all it's chalked up to be, right? Upon awakening, Paul isn't like, oh my God, this is dope. He's like shaken to his core. He's yeah. looking at one future involves a jihad. The other features atrocities he won't even name. And the whole time he's like, am I forced to choose? That's wild. We don't know. There are so many terrible possibilities and not that many hopeful ones. Clearly, it's not all it's chalked up to be. But there is some uncertainty here. We're not sure if these are the only two paths that he has. We are not sure Mm -hmm. if, you know, he's locked into anything or if he's just kind of seeing possible routes to take. And this section actually gives us a lot of really good hints as well as some just outright explanations which at this point in the story is needed (laughs) i definitely find myself scratching my head at times because frank does get pretty poetic in the way he writes about this stuff yeah completely and honestly i kind of appreciate that prescience is at this moment as confusing to us (laughs) as it must be to paul oh totally yeah there's no rule book no one's gonna no one's about to hand paul a book that's like how to learn prescience for dummies. Like <laughs> right. the, he's got to figure this out as we, the reader are also sort of experiencing this alongside him. And like you said, we're also experiencing the downsides of prescience as well. In the scene where Paul is boarding the ornithopter, there are some really interesting thoughts racing through his mind outside of like shit, 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 shit. Gotta <laughs> right, get out of here. Right, right. Yeah. There's, there's a great quote here. Quote, Paul nodded, fighting an abrupt reluctance to move. He knew its cause, but found no help in the knowledge. Somewhere this night, he had passed a decision nexus into the deep unknown. He knew the time area surrounding him, but the here and now existed as a place of mystery. It was as though he had seen himself from a distance go out of sight down into a valley. Of the countless paths up and out of that valley, some might carry Paul Atreides back into sight, but many would not. End quote. Ah, huge. Wow. Incredible. I love that valley metaphor. That's a great way to help us visualize this idea that decision nexus, this point in time where Paul is right now trying to get this ornithopter off the ground, he hasn't seen in any of his infinite visions. Right. He doesn't know what's going to happen. This is a huge blind spot. And he might see the paths that, quote unquote, come out of this valley, come out of this ornithopter incident. But right now, he's literally flying blind. He just doesn't know what the right choices are to get to one of those paths where he survives, where his mom survives. It's wild to think that there are these pitfalls and prescience. Yeah. And again, this, this is contrasting. It's not just he hasn't had the vision yet. It's... There are places that he cannot see. Yeah. It's it's wild. Now, 
this is topped off by his kind of self-reflecting realization. Quote, he joined her in the ornithopter, still wrestling with the thought that this was blind ground, unseen in any prescient vision. And he realized with an abrupt sense of shock that he had been giving more and more reliance to prescient memory, and it had weakened him for this particular emergency. If you rely only on your eyes, your other senses weaken. It was a Benny Gesserit axiom. Uh, such a great axiom. <laughs> so good. <laughs> and you got to imagine, you know, the kid wakes up with superpowers one day, wants to use them. This is his realization. Ah, damn. I might. Shit, 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 shit. I might have been using them too much. And now yeah. I have to fly this fucking flappy helicopter into a <laughs> deadly sandstorm. Well, <laughs> here we go. Right. Oh, God. I mean, how scary, scary to think that he just got his powers and he's already relying on them so much that the moment he can't, he's suddenly like, oh, fuck. The rug is pulled out from under him. This is 12 hours later. <laughs> he woke up. This was like night one in the tent. This is day two. It's like. <laughs> yeah. He's relying on his eyes too much and his other senses are weakening. He's beginning to trust too much in this prescient that he knows so little about and just awakened like a day ago. I also like. So very shortly after we rejoin them in the ornithopter after the four or so hour flight. And. <laughs> He notices, he says, he notices that he's basically nearly emerging from this nexus point and he's kind of sensing, okay, there's where all my visions start again. It's really cool. We're getting this sense that he's got a kind of clear understanding of beginning and end of these blind spots. Uh, we have a direct quote from the book here, quote, they were out of the storm, but still not into the full view of his prescient vision. Yet they had escaped. And Paul sensed himself trembling on the verge of a revelation. Again, love the writing in this these sections. So are just good. so good. Now, I, I really relate to Paul here. I understand his fear because I, too, have found myself trembling on a Spirit Airlines flight. <laughs> I can understand some of what he's feeling. <laughs> Every Spirit Airlines air flight ends with a revelation. <laughs> and that revelation is never fucking again never will I fly, fly spirit. on spirit <laughs> I why did I make this goddamn mistake dude, again dude, I bought every the time ticket. you book a spirit flight you're walking into a decision nexus baby <laughs> that no one sees no one knows what's gonna happen with that flight and you sit down and you think our fate is in the hands of that pilot up there <laughs> and his training. <laughs> Many paths lead a Leo alive, <laughs> landing at LaGuardia. <laughs> That's so silly. <laughs> so taking a step back here, like anyone should when booking a Spirit Airlines flight... At the beginning of the Idaho Kinds chapter, this chapter where Paul and Jessica make their escape, there's an excerpt at the top of that chapter from Princess Irulan Carino about Paul's prescience. And it's such a great excerpt. We want to read it here in full. Right. Quote, Muad'Dib could indeed see the future, but you must understand the limits of this power. Think of sight. You have eyes, yet you cannot see without light. If you are on the floor of a valley, you cannot see beyond your valley. Just so, Muad'Dib could not 
always choose to look across the mysterious terrain. He tells us that a single obscure decision of prophecy, perhaps the choice of one word over another, could change the entire aspect of the future. End oh, quote. Incredible. Oh my God. Yeah. The decision nexus, this blind spot that could go in a million different directions. What a terrifying concept that Paul just learns here. Reminder, in the middle of running for his life. <laughs> right. Trying to escape the deadly soldiers that just wiped the floor with Duncan Idaho and are chasing after him and his mother. And what insight into prescience, how deadly it truly can be. It's not some superpower. This is a burden that Paul Atreides has been given. So after the ornithopter flight, Paul is looking out on the desert and he realizes, holy shit, I've, I've fucking seen this. <laughs> Yeah. I've seen this scene. I've seen this moment in my life in a prescient vision. But you know what? It's different. <laughs> this Yikes. is the Snyder Cut. There are differences, <laughs> folks. The armor is spikier now. It's it's a little different. It's like a square resolution. It's weird. So, again, here's the quote from the book. Quote, and he paused, shaken by the remembered high-relief imagery of a prescient vision he had experienced on Kaladin. He had seen this desert, but the set of the vision had been subtly different, like an optical image that had disappeared into his consciousness, been absorbed by memory, and now failed at perfect registry when projected onto the real scene. The vision appeared to have shifted and approached him from a different angle while he remained motionless. Idaho. Idaho was with us in the vision, he remembered. But now, Idaho is dead. No! End quote. I know. We are in the wrong timeline. Uh, what did you do, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> Again, what decision did he make what that changed word? the outcome? Yeah, it's crazy. You Can you imagine the guilt that he must be feeling at this point? Knowing like, oh, there was a path here where Duncan Idaho didn't have to die. But also, where we don't know, and I don't think Paul knows, what is his agency, right? Right. Did he affect that? Yeah. Was that random chance? Was that just a flip of a coin? Could he have changed it? I mean, can you imagine the questions running through his mind at that moment? Oh, got to be so fucking confusing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Like, imagine watching your favorite movie, and then just it's a different actor. <laughs> oh, like, my God. Wait, uh, hmm. And you'll still enjoy the movie, but God, it's got to be weird. <laughs> right. Like, why is Paul Rudd playing Harry Potter? <laughs> and also, I where, think Ron's where did dead. Where Radcliffe go? Is, I think Ron's dead. That's, <laughs> I guess the movie still works. It's, it's actually not that much worse, but... Uh, huh. <laughs> uh, markedly better in some ways, actually. But... <laughs> wow, it's actually great. <laughs> Directed by Zack Snyder. Get out of here. That's crazy. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. Now, that, that's a... That's a Great, great example. It's like watching a movie you've seen before, but things are just different enough to be extremely off-putting. Yeah. And maybe you had a hand in making them different. Did yeah. you sign that Zack Snyder petition that <laughs> led to this Harry Potter reshoot? Who knows? Like it that's what he's feeling at this moment. Can we and make it's, that happen? Can we make that happen, please? No, we gotta make that happen. That's absurd. Oh my god. <laughs> Make Voldemort spikier, Zack Snyder. Make him spikier. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our final 
takeaway for this episode. Takeaway number three, never underestimate the Fremen, folks. Never do it. We see Fremen prowess on full display in this episode. We've only just heard about it or hinted at it up until now. But now, folks, we see it. The Fear Hawat sees it live. And, oh boy, everyone in the Imperium was wrong about the Fremen. It's wild, yeah. It is wild <laughs> how incorrect every single person in power was about these people. To get into some specific examples here. Yeah, yeah. The Fremen scout that the Fear Hawat is with in that chapter casually just real casually like it's a monday morning and he's ordering coffee yeah tells through fear that oh yeah we've already captured one of those artillery cannons that were hitting the shield wall earlier <laughs> and the fear's like what what <laughs> those cannons were defended by not just harkonnen soldiers but sardaukars yeah and the fremen's like oh yeah we actually took out one of those cannons it was defended by about a hundred men <laughs> right. We unfortunately lost two. Tragic. Yeah. The fear is understandably <laughs> yeah. fucking blown away by this. Give a mentat some data. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Overwhelmed with data. <laughs> Quote, if only we'd had time to link up with these Fremen. If only we could have trained them and armed them. Great mother. What a fighting force we'd have had. <sighs> yeah. End quote. That is what is racing through Thufir's mind at this moment. He is realizing, oh my gosh, if we had just a bit more time. And that, that's truly sort of the tragedy of Duke Leto Atreides here, right? His gamble was correct. Yeah. He was no gambling kidding. on the Fremen. And if things had played out just a little differently, the Fremen may have been just the tool the Atreides and Duke Leto would have needed to overcome a Harkonnen attack or an attack by the Sardaukar. Can we quickly acknowledge, maybe the Fremen should have trained House Atreides soldiers. <laughs> I was going to say, this quote actually rubs me the wrong way, yeah. where he's like, oh, if only we could have trained and armed them. Gurney, my guy, they don't need you. Yeah, y'all lost. They seem to be doing <laughs> just fine. <laughs> right. Clearly, the training would have gone the other way. Again, <laughs> another clear example of, even though it's right in front of his eyes, he still can't help but underestimate these people. Bad data. Bad data. Bad data. Yeah. Bias. It's incredible. So this scene continues. And the Fremen here actually doubles down and flexes even harder. He's like, you're not impressed enough. <laughs> yeah. Quote, we would not have lost the two except for those others fighting beside the Harkonnens. Some of those are good fighters. Some End those, quote. Some of those are good fighters. Oh Get out of here. God. Oh, my God. He also... Oh tags onto this we managed to capture only three of them we, but we caught captured some three of them. like can you <laughs> we, caught, we some. caught some we caught like pokemon <laughs> we caught some the only we we've been making a lot of analogies this episode the only thing the only apt analogy i can imagine in this scene is if you're in jurassic park sure <laughs> and the dinosaurs have all escaped yeah and maybe you're that your Jeep has been fucking wrecked by that T-Rex. Yeah. And then you come across one of the park rangers who you were like, what? I thought these guys just like watered the plants around here. Right. <laughs> right. And the park ranger is like, oh yeah, we killed a couple of T-Rexes and actually we captured two of them. We named them Jim and Jimmy. 
not very original in the names. <laughs> we, but like, again, their skill is not being original with names. Their skill is capturing fucking T Rexes. Right. Give like, the guy you'd, a break. you'd be like, what? What? Yeah. You you killed and captured the T Rexes. Insane. It's yeah. insane. And you know, of course, the Sardaukar, as we've learned thus far in the book, are arguably the strongest fighters in the entire galaxy and most definitely are the most feared. Every time people talk about the Sardaukar, it's in whispers. It's in trembling voices. Yeah. This force is to be feared. The Sardaukar are literally, just a little history lesson thrown in here, are literally the backbone of House Carino's 10,000-year rule over the Empire. Insane, yeah. And... In an earlier chapter, someone had commented that it would take the entire combined might of every single house in the Landsrod, in the governing body, to match the Emperor's Sardaukar forces. This one force could take on the combined might of every single house. These are the people that the Fremen not only defeated with minimal casualties, but then also captured i'm in the fear hawat shoes here i'm blown away no he's not all talk folks no <laughs> he's no, like no no oh yeah we did all this crazy stuff and then a couple minutes later we get the most incredible couple of sequences that i <laughs> fucking every finger is crossed that we see this in the movie because yes. this is going to be unbelievably glorious if we get to see it so we basically see some Fremen overpower Sardaukar forces who arrive in an ornithopter hilariously. They, like, pretend to be slow, dumb desert people, <laughs> and they, like, wave the Sardaukar down, and the Sardaukar are like, okay, I guess we'll go talk to the slow, dumb desert people. <laughs> they land, within seconds are dead, <laughs> just within seconds. And, of course, the Atreides men watching are like, what the fuck? Those were Sardaukar. <laughs> Jaws on the floor. Jaws on the floor. Dead T-Rexes everywhere. It's wild. <laughs> and the Fremen, one of them casually just gets into the ornithopter and flies off. And Thufir's like, again, kind of showing his ignorance here, going, huh, look at that. These quote-unquote desert savages that the whole Imperium has written off can fly an ornithopter. That's... It's crazy. Now, immediately after, it gets better, folks. A big troop carrier arrives with a full load of soldiers. It's heavy with the burden of how many deadly soldiers it's carrying. And you know what? What's a single Fremen's life in exchange for so many? The Fremen who captured the Ornithopter just flies the ship straight into the troop carrier, taking out the entire thing as well as the soldiers inside. Oh, my God. And the, the Fremen's like, yeah, <laughs> makes sense. Listen, and this is the quote. A reasonable exchange, said the Fremen beside Hawat. There must have been 300 men in that carrier. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, Lord. Jesus. A re- reasonable exchange indeed, my dude. That's wild. <laughs> wow. 300 T-Rexes. <laughs> Just a, just just a spaceship wiped. full of T-Rexes. <laughs> Soon, baby. <laughs> You're the kid in Jurassic Park just watching T-Rexes get wiped out. <laughs> it's incredible. I don't know where you pulled this analogy, but I love it. That's great. <laughs> it's very silly. 
Now, here's Can you the imagine? tragic. Can you fucking imagine though? T Rexes in Atreides uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I think those Harkonnen soldiers are actually T Rexes. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Now, the most tragic part of all of this, yeah, is that right after we witness all of this happen, in a subsequent chapter, the Baron brushes the Fremen off. Again. He totally writes them off. <laughs> yeah. And continues to do like what is basically the MO of anyone in the Empire and completely underestimate them right. just two chapters later. We talked about in a previous episode how little everyone just like seems to know about Arrakis and the Fremen. Like everyone's operating on this extremely valuable planet, basically blind. And no one has bothered to try and learn about the Fremen. Or their culture, because again, we're writing these people off as insignificant, as a tiny population of completely worthless people. And in this conversation that the Baron has with the beast Raban, he makes it clear just how ignorant the rich and powerful of the galaxy are about the Fremen. Quote, the Fremen aren't worth considering, end quote. <laughs> That's what the Baron says when Raban just brings up the Fremen. Right. When Raban brings up the fact that there are some reports out there that Fremen <laughs> could have defeated Sardaukar, should we be worried? We're missing like 200 Sardaukar. <laughs> Baron's like, ah, this There is was fine. a really full troop carrier. It's, it's gone, gone now. It's gone. We're missing about 300 T-Rexes. Uh... <laughs> and the Baron throws a response right back at Raban. He says, quote, they must have been Atreides men trained by Hawat and disguised as Fremen. It's the only possible answer. End quote. <laughs> I also love that Beast Raban's like, well, I don't know about that. I mean, listen, we, like, we shouldn't write them off full. And then the Baron interrupts him. <laughs> Ignore them, boy. They're a rabble. It's the populous town cities and villages that concern us. <laughs> Which is like, oh my gosh, amazing stuff. Also, considering Raban is not well known for his perceptiveness or his brains, uh, yeah. so that the Baron does this is very, uh, it's uncharacteristically sloppy of the Baron, who's actually fairly meticulous with a lot of his plans, right? But, but also, to your point, speaks to the fact that for almost everybody in the galaxy. The Fremen are very easy to write off, and they have been for so many thousands of years. The Harkonnens have been on planet Arrakis for 80 years, and not once has the Fremen populace demonstrated themselves to be anything other than what the Baron expected them to be. Brilliantly. Like, that's the plan. <laughs> Fly under the radar. Do what the smugglers do. But still, it's pretty wild. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. I mean... The vibes of this conversation yeah. are straight up like talking to your manager who refuses to listen <laughs> that this project, buddy, is going to go way over budget. <laughs> like the beast Raban is like, dude, we don't have the budget to do this. And the Baron's answer is like, we're going to do it great. It's going to be excellent. Everything's going to be CG. It's going to be Every great. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Make it all CG. You know what? Replace all the orcs with CG. It'll be fine. It'll be great. And then we end up with the Hobbit. Like it's... Oh, <laughs> that's that's the vibe Too that I'm soon. getting from this conversation. <laughs> Poor Raban is speaking truth and the Baron refuses to see it. And those are our key takeaways for this section. Yeah. One, mentats are a big deal and they're critically important 
to the Empire. Two, prescience isn't all it's cracked up to be, and it's got its pitfalls. Yep. And three, the Fremen, they <laughs> fuck. <laughs> they, they fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Overpowered, incredibly capable, probably in bed, definitely on the battlefield. The Fremen fuck. Indeed. <laughs> Alrighty, it's time for another break, but stick around because in just a minute, we're going to get into our lightning round deep cut lore nuggets. Stick around. All right. Well, I think it's about time. We've delayed enough. Let's open up the Frem kit of our deep desert nuggets, our little spice nodes, and let's get into some of these fun deep lore cuts. So to start off, Distrans! Hell yeah! Yes. Ugh, love them. They're adorable. When Thufir and his short-lived Fremen escort are hanging out in the basin, we actually see our first example of a Silago bat Distrans. We covered this in depth in our kind of animals episode. But basically, very quickly, Silago bats are small little bats that are used as a secure communication method across the desert. Kind of like um, carrier pigeons. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know more suited for desert stuff. Right. The distrans themselves are actually small neural implants that can basically transfer messages between people who have the receivers and transmitters. We do see in this scene the Fremen use a transmitter. Quote, The man took a tiny tube, held it beside the bat's head, and chattered into the tube. Then, lifting the creature high, he threw it upward. And it presumably flew away and didn't just come (laughs) tumbling back to the ground. Now, the Distrans and Salago bats are pretty much the only secure means of communication across distance in the deep desert, where we basically know there's no cell phone antennas or, you know, your LTE <laughs> is definitely running out. You're on like two bars at best, but also as covered more seriously, uh, static from the desert, like basically destroys most signals. Yeah. There's also kind of a weird moment here where he kind of spits into the bat's mouth uh it's not exactly explained why he did this i didn't see in the kind of encyclopedia mention (laughs) i just think of it like he's giving a dog a treat and he mentions sense and he mentions like i'll be sad when i see this one go maybe they fly off sometimes (laughs) so you know give them some uh give them some spit give them what they like and they uh hang out (laughs) that's a leo that's a great theory any bat experts out there want to confirm and deny that hit us up come to our podcast at gmail.com we want to know about bats folks send us bat facts should we be spitting in their mouths (laughs) (laughs) yes or no quickly drop those bat facts folks all right nugget number two yes balisets yeah what the heck are they gurney's always got one he's strumming one in that final chapter yeah according to the terminology of the imperium at the end of the book quote a nine-stringed musical instrument, lineal descendant of the Zithra, tuned to the Chisuk scale and played by strumming. Favorite instrument of the Imperial Trabadors. End quote. Mm. That's a string of words that makes no sense to me, and I don't think it's <laughs> just because I'm bad with music. <laughs> sure. Now, the Dune Encyclopedia elaborates a bit further on what mm-hmm. balsets are. And yeah, it's related to a guitar in many ways, basically. It's a stringed instrument that you strum. Now, the manufacturing of balsets is a wildly fickle process. <laughs> it involves 
uh, multiple periods of like our specific time in the sun. And the whole process takes a third of a year to oh complete. My God. Yeah. So a handcrafted high quality bow set, it's going to cost you some money, folks. Not it's easy true. to make. It's true. Next up, we've got spiced coffee. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. So we've heard about spiced coffee before. And we're going to continue hearing about it because it's one of the few like food and drink items that we hear pretty consistently in Dune for basically all of the books. And I just wanted to give some depth to it because the Dune Encyclopedia has a particularly uh, fun section about this. We have a recipe for spiced coffee. Oh, my God. Written by Jessica. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> to the head chef of House Atreides. And I'm happy to share it here, folks. Yeah, you can grab a notepad, it, folks. Write this one grab down. Grab a notepad. This episode will delete upon completion. <laughs> can't listen to it again. 175 milliliters of water for each cup of coffee. Don't ask me how many football fields that is. I have no idea. 15 grams of Fremen grind coffee, which is very fine. So very, very fine ground coffee. Five milliliters of spice for each cup. And then, of course, sugar or honey to taste. The... Instructions are pretty straightforward. Use a drip coffee pot, no Ixian Keurig machines here, pour <laughs> boiling water and allow to drip slowly, and afterwards, add spice, sugar, or honey to taste. If you want to substitute for spice, you can use cinnamon because it's often described as a very rich cinnamon smell. So whereas we don't necessarily know what it tastes like, that's kind of what people do here, mm -hmm. in, here on Earth in the today era. And finally... Hilariously, as part of this handwritten note, Jessica jabs at someone named Daba, who basically, in the past, used the wrong melange. Uh, <laughs> so, like, she's like, use this specific spice for making this coffee, talking to you, Daba. So, you know, guys, point is, get your shit together, Daba. Get your shit together, Daba. <laughs> Make Jessica a proper cup of coffee. Come on. What are you doing? <laughs> All right, our next nugget is all about those Space and Guild rates, folks. Oh, can't, it's can't. an extortion. <laughs> yeah. We get multiple references to just how costly this attack on Arrakis was. Thufir estimated that it took 50 years worth of spice revenue. The Baron, later on, estimates around 60 years. Maybe he's inflating a bit, accounting for interest. Either way, that's expensive. Now, part of the reason for that incredible expense is those transportation rates that the Spacing Guild charges. And we can see exactly why outright warfare is so uncommon in the Empire in this galaxy. Just imagine how expensive it would be to transport your entire army <laughs> from one planet to another right. while having to pay those guild hazard rates, the same rates that the Baron complains about in these chapters. It's just not viable. And just a reminder, the Spacing Guild has a total monopoly on space travel in this universe. Yeah. We are in a post-computer world. Right. Computers would normally do these incredibly complex calculations to make sure your ship could safely make it from point A to point B in the galaxy and get through hyperspace. Instead, the solution that the Spacing Guild found was to train and breed these navigators who can take a little bit of spice and use a small, limited form of prescience to drive their massive highliners through hyperspace 
and transport people from place A to place B. They filled that niche. They created a business out of it. And now they have an Amazon level monopoly (laughs) on transportation in the galaxy. So the next time, folks, you are thinking about taking the kids to Disneyland on the planet Bella Tegu's, (laughs) be ready to pay those pricey guild tickets. It's not coming cheap. Oh my gosh. But it's worth it. Disneyland Bella Tegu's is just about the best. Second only to Disneyland Tokyo. (laughs) (laughs) And the final little spice nugget that we've got is simply laser gun plus shield equals massive boom kaboom kaboom you may have wondered why there are so many close quarters in blade combat instances in this book you know early training scenes paul is training with a knife and there's just a table of knives it's all knives it's all knives and swords and part of this is because of the trick that duncan pulls in one of these chapters We covered this effect extensively in our Holtzman episode, which is one of our spoiler-free episodes. And honestly, guys, one of my favorite of the ones that we've done. It's so good. Some of my favorite jokes. But basically, to very quickly summarize, Holtzman was the man responsible for inventing shielding technology as well as like all of the other important technologies. But (laughs) basically, the shielding technology is his. Now, they've got like a fun little quirk where... Normally, if you shoot something fast at a shield like a bullet or like a slingshot or even just a very fast punch, it will deflect kind of like a Newtonian fluid. You know, you come at it fast, it's going to bounce you away. If you shoot it with a laser, it causes subatomic fusion. Like it's, yes. it's a nuclear explosion. And that's not always the desired effect. <laughs> you don't right. <laughs> always want... You know, you brought a nuclear warhead to a gunfight, my guy. Calm down. So because of this, guns are almost never used in combat, basically at all, because normal ones are useless and laser ones are way too useful. (laughs) In the wrong way. It's it's the two ends of the spectrum. They either do nothing (laughs) or they do way too much. Blades in hand-to-hand combat are the most effective way to get around shielding. And... To wrap up this nugget, you can learn, again, as I mentioned, more about Holtzman effect and how all of those things kind of work in our Holtzman episode, as well as actually we had a Tech of Dune episode, which I really enjoyed as well, and is also spoiler-free. So check those out. Totally. Wow. Another one in the books, Leo. We did it. Oh, man. This one was a doozy. (laughs) Yeah. We're recording this on the hottest day in New York. With our ACs off, folks. It's dedication. We are, this is method podcasting. We are feeling the heat <laughs> of Arrakis. We have created, I have, I have sand in my booth. I have <laughs> tiny worms and uh, poison everywhere. <laughs> we got to put ourselves in the mindset, you know, it's, it's dedication. <laughs> That's what we do, but we love it. So for our next episode, for book club episode five, Be sure that you've read through page 500, even on the nose, basically up until the sentence, I cannot let it be. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. And that's our takeaways yeah. for today's episode. One. Uh, let me look at this. <laughs> scroll, 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 scroll. <laughs> Hold on. Oh, fuck. So much scrolling. This is a 15-page script. Jesus. I, this is going to be a two-hour recording. Yeah, Have it fun. Is. <laughs>